Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we are convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Packer. church. Uh, Let's begin with prayer as we open God's word together this morning. God, we give uh, you thanks. We're building our lives upon your love and upon your word and upon your truth and upon your grace. And it's all of these things, God, that are the foundation for all that we're trying to do. And yet so often our eyes go off track. Our mission uh, is secondary things become primary. And today we want to root our lives in what is primary, what your mission is that you've given to your church. And so I pray this morning you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's the name of Jesus that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Well, imagine a world with me. Imagine a world where 50 years from now, civilization as we know it is gone. Uh, maybe there's some kind of meteoric event or something like that. But the, the, the civilization, civilization we know is destroyed. It's obliterated. It's wiped out. With an opener like that, you can only imagine where the sermon's headed today, right? But eventually there's a group of people, perhaps from another planet, that come and they see uh, the ruins of that civilization. There's nothing left except for this MP3 file, right? And that MP3 file has on it, as they discover, as they listen to it, The prayers of the American church, the American Christians, in the 20th and 21st centuries. And everything they have to understand about this world that they are, the civilization they're entering into is, are are the prayers on that MP3 player. I want you to think for a moment, what would they expect or assume about the world that we live in? What would they come to know about the God that we believe in? What would they come to know about our anxieties and the things that we focus on? And think on so often. Again, there's no Bible. There's no remaining church buildings. The only thing these individuals have to learn about the previous civilization is a list of prayers that we've given to God. What would they assume about your worldview? About your preoccupations? What would they learn about your God? I don't have the MP3 file this morning, but I have heard thousands of prayers over my lifetime. And I have a hunch about the primary conclusion that that civilization that comes in to discover this would come to see. And that is that the primary concern we have as American Christians based on the prayers we pray is about our safety. God, keep us safe. God, keep us from harm. And if I'm right about that hunch, I believe we have a misunderstanding about what it means to be Christians in this century. 
Now, the desire to be secure and safe is not a sinful desire. It's actually a, a God-given desire that's been handed to us, right? The idea that uh, we're, we're to protect and preserve our lives, that's this instinct. It's a fight-or-flight response that we have to uh, things that come our way. And so I don't want to say it's sinful. In fact, this is the very reason that tribes began to develop early on in human societies, because if you try to do life on your own, it isn't going to go all that well. That's why our small groups are so important. We believe in the value of community as a church. But when you're part of a group, we know that you stand a greater chance when, against attack of animals or attack of other tribes if you have people to stand with. What's interesting is the Bible actually talks about this natural growth that happens in human society. You can see the Genesis 1-11 through story in a lot of different ways. And, and of course it's the story about Adam and this growing family, this growing humanity. But you can also see in these first 11 chapters the growing rise of civilization from a family to an empire. Just think about the first three chapters. It begins in a garden, and, and Adam and Eve are left to the garden. They're agriculturalists. They're tending to this garden in the midst of the thorns and thistles, of course, that come after they're kicked out of the garden. And in fact, in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel is a story about the advance of society. Abel is the less advanced nomadic herder. And he comes in contact with Cain, who's the more advanced older brother, right, who is a settled farmer. You see, the first murder isn't just a story about two brothers that can't get along. It's also a commentary about civilization and the coming of age. The nomadic herder Abel finds conflict with the settled farmer Cain, so the farmer invites the herder onto his land and kills him in cold blood. Apparently, violence and bloodshed are part of what comes with the growth of our world. And there's this phrase that begins to show up in Genesis that John Steinbeck actually uses to describe one of his novels, East of Eden. It comes up over and over again in these first 11 chapters. They move east out of the garden. They continue their drift east, eastward, eastward, east of Eden. And uh, what does Cain do next in this move east of Eden? He builds a city. And this is a new expansion of tribe because when people congregate together in cities, new possibilities emerge. I like to think of it this way. I love big cities. I've grown up in them. There's more, square, uh, there's more image of God per square inch in cities than anywhere else on planet earth, right? And that provides all kinds of possibilities and industry and the growth of so much. Creativity happens in city centers, but there's also a lot more violence, because evil has a way of working into humans as well and building all kinds of uh, trouble in cities. And this is where we find the people of God as Cain begins to move off from his killing of his brother Abel. In the case of Cain and his new tribe, it seems that evil is emerging rather quickly. And next week I'm going to come back to the flood story, but I want to read just briefly one verse from Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, to let you know what has happened, what's grown up around these cities uh, in this time. This is, again, Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So God uh, sees this evil, all of this wickedness that's going on, and he decides, I'm going to start over. We're going to wash this earth clean. The flood is a new creation opportunity. The first command after the flood is the same command after the creation. Be fruitful and multiply. We've got to start this thing all over again. So God sends a, a flood, and it doesn't take long for God's do-over after the flood to go wrong again. Civilization continues its rise, and with it, its fall. 
And I want to read from Genesis 11, a story of the Tower of Babel that's really what happens after that next rise of civilization. This is uh, Genesis chapter 11, verse 2. They said, uh, let's see, before that, verse 2, as people moved eastward, again that drift east, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. This is a story about a lot of different things, but one of the things it's about is about the rise of technology. Think about the the shift of technology that happens. We talked about this in the work series that I did a, a couple of years ago. The difference between stones and stacking those stones to build all kinds of things versus bricks, right? I mean, the, the, the advance in technology of a brick creates all kinds of possibilities with mortar between them. And all of a sudden, slavery pops up in Egypt. And what are the, the slaves making? They're making bricks, right? And, and, and so they're building these cities, they're building these empires, and that's what's happening with this tower in Genesis chapter 11. The leaders in Babylon see all kinds of new past possibilities. And do you see how the language shifts in this story? It's not personal language, it's plural language. It's the cooperation of this group of people. They say, let us build ourselves a city so that we may make a name for ourselves. When God calls a group of people, he does so within a specific context of the ancient Near East. And in the ancient Near East, your tribe was everything. Your tribe was your family. It was your bloodline. It was your home and your identity. You accumulated possessions together. You fought battles together. You made treaties with other tribes together and alliances. And you did it all in the name of tribal preservation because tribes were a means of security in an insecure time and era. A tribe provided safety to families because, believe it or not, there was a time where you couldn't call 911 when things went wrong. In the ancient Near East, the world was extremely dangerous And without the protection of a tribe, you could easily find yourself enslaved or worse at the hands of other powers. And when you read these Old Testament stories about so-and-so accumulating uh, this many fighting men or a certain number of of horses that they had accumulated, all of these camels, all these things are are ways of them trying to make their way in the midst of a culture that's much, very unlike ours. This was life or death. This was kill or be killed. And no matter how many battles you'd fought and won, you were always one battle away from losing everything, from the loss of your family or your children, or maybe even being carried off to a foreign land to live under a new tribe. So what's going on in Genesis 11? Well, a tribe wanting to build a tower to make a name for itself isn't odd in this time. That's what tribes do. Tribes protect the interest of the tribe. Tribes seek security from any outside threat. For tribes, it's important to know who's inside the tribe and those who are on the outside of it. This is normal and natural stuff. That's what tribes did back then. That's what tribes do still today. Tribal thinking permeates our world. Just think about a high school cafeteria for a moment, right? Just look around and you can see the segments of people that tend to identify themselves by what tribe they most associate with. But it's not just in high school cafeterias. That continues on, right? In our own day, we can look around and see fraternities and sororities. We see Facebook groups. Just Friday night, I was at a collegiate football game, and it's pretty amazing to see the tribal loyalties break out in a setting like that. I just got a text message from someone in this crowd reminding me that 
uh, cowboy game's coming up at noon, so you better wrap this thing up. It's a reminder of tribalism, right? And I know that clock is ticking. You see, uh, we have all these tribes, and, and the church I grew up in was a tribe that offered me the promise of what ancient tribes offered to people in their day. Uh, the main carrot that was dangled out in front of me growing up was security. If I came to believe in Jesus and chose to be baptized into his name, the reward was security, eternal security. I could know that I stood in a good place with God and that I would be assured of eternal life if I would make this decision. For me, Christianity was pitched as a safe wager. Christianity was a life insurance policy. The choice to follow Jesus was a choice to establish my future security. Christianity was a way to play it safe. No wonder my prayers and our prayers have been so focused on safety and security. Safety and security have been the point from the very beginning of my walk with God. But while most tribes exist to protect the insiders and to give them a sense of security, I've come to believe that Christianity is a different kind of tribe altogether. You remember what God does in Genesis 11 in the midst of the story of the Tower of Babel? Let's keep reading. Genesis 11 verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. This is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. God scatters this tribe. God confuses them, spreads them over the face of the earth. Apparently, God has a different vision of what a tribe should be than what tribes naturally become. And in Genesis 12, God starts over. But this time, He doesn't start with a flood. He selects a family. He selects a man named Noah, who's a righteous man. And he establishes a new kind of tribe. And I believe the, the next three verses I'm going to read to you are some of the most revolutionary words ever put together in human language before. Radical words that were radical then, and I would suggest to you they're radical still today. Let's keep reading in Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Those are three of the most revolutionary passages, verses that have ever been written in human history. But you have to look closely to see it because it's easy to skip over it, especially if you've read this several times. And you have to hear how revolutionary these words would have been back in their context. This isn't business as usual. God is inviting them to create a brand new kind of tribe, a tribe that's ahead of its time. This is revolutionary stuff. And what's so revolutionary about it? Well, what do we know about tribes? Tribes exist for the insiders. Tribes exist to defend the tribe against other tribes. Tribes are a means of security, but not this tribe. Do you notice what verse 3 said? All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
This tribe, God's chosen people, exists to bless all the other tribes on planet Earth. That was a fresh idea then, and it's a fresh idea now. Abram's tribe will have a higher purpose than simply its own wealth, its own preservation, its own well-being. Abraham's tribe will exist to bless and benefit all of the other tribes. Israel's not creating a conventional tribe here. Israel's a new kind of tribe, a different kind of tribe, an alternative tribe. A tribe that believes God's blessings don't run out, that runs on not scarcity, but on the idea that God is generous. And he doesn't bless us so that we can hoard those blessings. He blesses the people of God so we can be a vessel through which those blessings will reach the entire world. And the rest of the Bible is the story of this tribe, Abram's tribe, Israel, struggling to live up to that vision that was given to him in chapter 12 of Genesis. So let's keep reading. And let's see a little bit more of that struggle because I think if you hold in juxtaposition Genesis 12 with the passage we're about to read, I think we see the struggle that all of our tribes still continue to struggle with. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8, 1 Samuel 8. At this point in the story, Abram has had a son, two sons, but Isaac is the son of promise. And past that, Isaac has a son named Jacob. Past that story, Jacob has a son named Joseph. And in Egypt, the people of God are enslaved and they forget who Joseph is. Finally, they're released from that bondage. They enter into the wilderness and finally into the promised land. And when they're in the promised land, they're struggling with a sense of who are we and how are we supposed to organize ourselves. And 1 Samuel 8 is part of the struggle of that. Because in this passage, all the people are crying out for something. They're crying out and saying, can we have a king like all the other nations? The trouble is God has been their king, and, and Samuel's upset about their request, and Samuel says, i got to go to God about this, and he goes to God, and I want you to listen closely because this is the danger of opting to be like all the other tribes. First uh, Samuel 8, verse 7. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel goes on to tell him, you can have a king if you want a king. But if you have a king, this is the bad stuff that's going to happen. He's going to take your sons and he's going to put them in the military and they're going to die in war. And he's going to take your daughters and they're going to go into his harem. And he's going to tax you beyond measure. And then he'll take you as slaves. God says, you can have that, but if you choose that, I want you to hear what I'm going to do on the backside if you cry and moan about this decision. 1 Samuel 8, verse 18. When the day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And you see the people's response in the next verse. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then... We will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. Did you hear it? We're tired of being a different kind of tribe. We just want to be like all the other tribes. Give us a king so we'll be like all the other nations. And that's the problem. God had never called Abram to be like all the other nations. 
They were supposed to be distinct. They were supposed to bless the world. They were supposed to be different. And what God prophesies is exactly what happens. They end up crying out to God. God doesn't hear their cry, or at least he doesn't respond as they'd hope. They enter into exile to pay for their decision. And then God sends the prophets to basically remind them of what Genesis 12 had said from the very start. This wasn't about you. Yeah, I've gathered you as a people, but I gathered you because you were a lesser tribe so that I could get the glory. Ultimately, this isn't about you. And if you'll come back to the original vision, maybe there will be a future for you. I remember the frustration of growing up in a strict Christian home growing up. Some of you remember the same thing. I used to say a certain phrase that I'm beginning to wonder if my kids are about to utter to me. And it went something like this. But all of the other kids... You ever heard that phrase before? But all the other kids get to watch. But all the other kids get to stay out until. But all the other kids, and I got to tell you, I had to have said that phrase at some point, and I'm concerned about the day where I'm going to hear it for the first time. Maybe I've, we've already heard that. We have an innate desire to fit in. We don't want to stand out. We want to be like all the other kids. We want to be like all the other nations. But as a parent, I don't want my kids to blend in. I want them to stand out. My project, our project with our kids is not an agreed upon solution that, yeah, whatever the other kids do, why don't you go do that? Oh, all the other kids' parents do it then? Well, let's do that too. Because we have a different vision for our kids. And that different vision leads to a different path that we want them to walk down. And it's the same way with God. God's people were not created to fit in. Paul says it a specific way in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 is a great chapter, all of it. I want to focus in, though, this morning on verses 14 and 15. Listen to what Paul writes to the Philippian church. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. In other words, do everything without saying, all the other kids, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then, then you'll shine among them like stars in the sky. We weren't meant to blend in. We were actually supposed to shine like stars. And here's where the sales pitch that I grew up with, I think, falls short. As I said earlier, Christianity was sold to me like an insurance policy. It was a tribe that assured my security. It was a, it was a safe wager that I was making. But here's the reality. If you sign up to follow Jesus, it will put you in harm's way. If you're doing it right. If you sign up to follow Jesus, it's an invitation to live as a stranger and an alien in the midst of a culture that lives a bit differently than you do. Let's not forget that 11 of the 12 apostles who follow Jesus and lead the church end up being martyred. They are killed for their faith, their belief in Jesus. We follow a man named Jesus who was put to death on a cross, which means when we bear his name under the name Christian, Christ in the middle of that, perhaps we'll meet the same fate. 
This tribe that follows Jesus has some nerve to it. We are eager to baptize people. We're so eager to baptize people in the name of Jesus that we tell people that Jesus' life is the way to security and safety. And you know what I think? I think we ought to stop doing that. I think we ought to do the opposite of that. Instead of making following Jesus sound safe, I think we ought to beg people not to get baptized if what they're looking for is security and safety. And I think this is part of the reason why our children are wandering away from their faith is because they're looking for a life of adventure and they're reading it in Scripture and they're wondering, why does my experience in church look so different and so safe and so antiseptic from what I read in the pages of the Bible? Why do the apostles face that kind of adventure and yet when I walk out, it doesn't seem that that's what I'm supposed to do? They're looking for an adventure. They're looking for a radical life. And when you sign up to follow Jesus, you're signing up for the road less traveled. You're signing up to shine like stars in the midst of a dark sky. Christianity is not the path of conventional wisdom. Christianity isn't a tribe like all the other tribes. The church is the new Israel living out the calling that God gave Abram thousands of years ago. We refuse to live like all the other tribes live. We refuse to live in fear. We refuse to live for ourselves. We are following a Savior who willingly gave up his own life on behalf of a world gone mad. Do you see how radical Genesis 12 was in its day? Do you see how radical Genesis 12 is in our day? This tribe that God set out to create was a tribe ahead of its time, and it still is. This has always been God's dream, that that a group of people would, would stop trying to live secure, safe lives, but instead a group of people would risk everything to love the world around them, to love everyone they encounter. We need to stop making what we're doing sound so normal, so wise. Because it's actually quite foolish, according to the Apostle Paul. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is the place I want to really close our time, is just dwelling in this passage for a moment. I want to remind you who wrote these words. We read his words in 1 Corinthians a moment ago. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read in verse 18 and following, but I want to remind you. Paul was originally a guy named Saul. And Saul grew up in a a religious faith that understood who insiders and outsiders were. And there was a great challenge that came to this faith when Jesus comes to the earth because he challenges the status quo. He reinterprets Torah in some places. You've heard that it was said, but, but I say to you. And he's, he's rightly, I think, uh, interpreting God's law all throughout, trying to not cancel the written law, but actually to fulfill it in new ways. But it's a challenge to those who are around him. Saul is sold out to this path. And the struggle that that church is going to face in the first century is a struggle to live up to the words in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Every single letter that Paul writes, he's writing about a conflict that's going on between who? Between the Jews and the Gentiles. The church is struggling to live out the very thing God had told Abram back in Genesis 12 that they were supposed to do. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. Whoever blesses you, I will curse. Whoever curses, or whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. But I'm blessing you. What does he say? For the sake of all peoples on 
earth. And the struggle of that first century church is, how do we do that? Can we do that? Can Gentiles be Christians? Do Gentiles have to become like Jews in order to be included in this group? It's about who's in and who's out. While the whole time, they've been blessed as a people. Why? Not so they can secure themselves. Not that they can hoard the blessing of God, but so they, they can extend that out to all peoples on earth. And it's happening in the first century, and the church is struggling with it. And Saul's a Pharisee of Pharisees, perfect according to the law. He's living it out really well. So much so that he's going to persecute the people who are trying to come to receive the blessing of God. And he kills a few. He stands over an, an encouragement over this in Stephen's case. But something happens to Saul. Saul has to rethink what Genesis 12 is all about in his own day. Saul has to think about what all those commands about circumcision meant in his own day. He's having to rethink all of these things that gave them identity, that made them know we're the insiders and all those people are the outsiders. And now Jesus is doing a new thing and Saul becomes Paul and he's trying to help the church see you've got to stop excluding these people who are coming to God. You've got to stop making it hard on them. You've got to... Allow the blessing that God's been pouring into your lap to flow into others. And this is what Paul says about that shift. This is the radical nature that we forget that we try to, we wouldn't say it like Paul says it. We'd make it sound so much more reasonable and wise. But listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached. Anyone want to say amen this morning? To save those who believe. The Jews demand signs. The Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is some foolishness we've signed up for. It's an odd way to live because every other tribe tells you it's about you and it's about your security it's about your enjoyment. It's just about me, me, me. And it can be real easy for Christianity every now and again to whine to God and say, but can't we just be like all the other groups of people? Can't, can't we just for once not be the different group, not be the foolish group? Can't we just for once, can't we be on the in crowd? And God says, you can do it. It ain't going to turn out all that well for you. But if you remember who you are, you were blessed for a reason. It wasn't to hoard that blessing. It wasn't because you were special. He chose you in order to pour that blessing, to be a vessel through which the entire world is blessed with the blessing of God. There's a lot of talk these days about how do we secure our rights as Christians? How do we make sure that we're not, in reality, the minority group that's different from the rest of the world? How do, how do we make sure that we have our standing and our power and we have those in positions of influence who can make sure we're protected? I, I look at a passage like this and I'm like, that is missing the picture. We were always on the outside. We were always to look different. 
were always the alternative to the conventional wisdom of the day. And so I wonder if maybe this moment is the very moment we're able to walk back into the pages of what Genesis 12 gave to us. They say, this was never about you standing at the center of things. This was about you standing to the side. This is about you shining like stars in the sky. This was about you having blessing poured into you, not demanding any rights, but laying those rights down as Jesus did in order to bless the entire world. That is a vision I want to sign up for. That's the tribe I want to be a part of. Is the tribe that says, yeah, we're willing to lay down our lives again. And we're willing to give up our rights. And we're willing to be the blessing, the vessel through which God blesses the entire world. I know we've got our tribal loyalties and time's ticking. But I want to close with a prayer this morning. That God would give us the imagination, that he would give us the insight, that he would continue to pour his blessing, but only because we've shown a trust with him to be able to pour that into the lives of others. And that is true for us as a church. It's true for us as individuals as well. You've been blessed You've been called child of God. And it's not for you to hoard that blessing or the story or the message of salvation you've been given. It's important that you continue to bless others with that message. Let's pray as we close this morning. God, I thank you for these words in Genesis 12 that are some of the most revolutionary words that have ever been written or spoken. And yet we as your people continue to want to look like all these other nations, all these other tribes. Because it feels secure to have an earthly king that we can look to. It feels secure to, to look like everyone else and not stand out so that we're not cut down. And yet the call that you've always given your people from Genesis 12 through the, the, the Israel that's gathered in the kingdom through Jesus and into the early church and even to today, your calling is not that we would look like everyone else, but that we would be a people who would be vessels, pathway that would... Be blessed not so that we can point to ourselves, but so we can bless the entire world with this message. God, would you allow us to lean into this more this week? To lean away from any kind of power that would want to root us at the center of everything and to realize that our place is always as strangers and exiles on the Martians, inviting the world to this blessing of an alternative way of life that is so much better than the conventional path. So God, this morning we submit again to your foolishness, which is really wisdom. And we submit to your weakness, which is really strength. We ask that you would give us the courage and the boldness to not whine to you like we sometimes hear and have sometimes said ourselves that we want to be like everyone else, but to realize the blessing it is to stand out and shine like stars. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus who did just that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you to inspire people to follow Jesus because you're convinced, like we are, that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Connect with us on Twitter. You can find and follow us there at Greenville Oaks. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.